My name is Jeff DeVries. I'm from Liliana Christian High School. <coughs> if you're sitting in this room, um, I hope it's worth your time by the end. Um, yeah, I can imagine different reasons, maybe three different audiences that are here. Some of you may be here because uh, it's talking about Christian education as a tool, and it's let's think again about what is it that we're trying to do with Christian education. What does that mean? Uh, I've done this enough years that I know that some of you, although you might have been scared off from a session tenor like this, are the very pragmatic uh, mindset. Dog on it. Don't talk to me about anything theoretical. I want something I can do Monday when I'm back in my class. So I know that those people are here. And then the people that I probably understand the best are the people that picked up the Springsteen illusion in the title. And they said, maybe he'll play some music. And he will. That's what we're going to start. Yeah. Um, so at the very least, yes, you're going to get to hear some snippets of Bruce Springsteen along the way. Um, in fact, those are the first people we'll, we'll appease. I'm going to start with that. And in the interest of full disclosure, I'm a big Bruce Springsteen fan. Um, I've seen him live several times, which is a trip. Uh, I keep going, please, please go on tour one more time. Um, I love his music. I love his lyrics. I, I don't think there's a better American songwriter that captures sort of the, the things that haunt us. The, the broken spots in us as individuals, in us as a society. Um, and so I'll be upfront about that. Uh, getting a chance to work some of his songs in was kind of fun. Uh, but I also think that the song we're going to start with is a great place to start for a couple of reasons. If you don't want theory, you're going to have to bear with me for a half hour because I really think there's a lot of philosophical groundwork that has to, to get laid to get to the pragmatic part, and then I'm going to try and get pragmatic. But I think I'm arguing for a shift in, in how some of us think about Christian education, certainly a shift maybe in my own thinking from when I first started and how I think about Christian education. Uh, so we'll start with the song that's given my lecture title here. Uh, we'll see this is the beginning of Hungry Heart here. Or we won't. Everybody needs a place to rest. Everybody wants to have a home. Don't make no difference what nobody says. Ain't nobody likes to be alone. Double, double negatives. <laughs> makes a um, You know, the lyric there captures a man's restlessness, his search for a home. And in the first line, he's leaving home because the home he's in apparently doesn't feel like 
home. So he sets out looking for for what? He's not sure. But there has to be something better than where he's at. Something that offers a place to rest, something that feels like home. Now, I think that that song is directly addressing something really important for Christian school teachers to consider. Uh, and I want to try and illustrate how well-meaning Christian educators might fail. So I'm going to say, let's, let's picture a high school version of me back in the day being asked to analyze this song for class. Maybe it's an English class or music appreciation class. Let's talk about this song. Uh, and so it's a young, a 16-year-old me. Uh, no gray hair. And uh, I think that my 10 to 12 years of Christian education would have pushed discernment kind of talk. Encourage me to point out what's broken or sinful here and what's edifying. Uh, and the problem would be that my Christian education would also have taught me uh, that Christians are not supposed to feel empty because we have Jesus. And he meets our every need and desire. So with both of these things operating, let's discern and let's understand, there ain't nothing empty in me. I'm all filled up. Let's talk about the song. Uh, the result would have been a really, really sort of pharisaical reading. Uh, this guy left his wife and kids. Bad. Yeah, that's not too hard to figure out. And why did he do that? Well, he's empty. He admits it. He's got a hungry heart. The guy would just meet Jesus. Problem solved. And mic drop. You know? And what I'm afraid is that I might have had teachers who would have applauded that. And I'm appalled by it. <laughs> um, these hermeneutic maneuvers render a really weird, judgmental reading of that song that doesn't pay any attention to what Springsteen is saying. I mean, in the end, you can disagree with him if you want, but at least hear what he's saying, and that ain't it. All right? He's saying everybody has a hungry heart. That's the chorus. Everybody has a hungry heart. Not this one guy who loves his wife has a hungry heart. Everybody has a hungry heart. So, if I was going to give a more charitable reading and more Christian reading, I'd at least be talking about that idea. The song is certainly not meant to be uh, a critique of one man's life. That's what he's doing. Let's hold this guy up and talk about whether he was good or bad in what he chose to do. Um, So while I'm hardly in favor of people ditching their spouses or children, I find that my Christian education might have led me to a poor reading of the text. I also think that in many ways our schools haven't changed, that the same issues that uh, could lead students today into making that same poor reading. Uh, and here's the irony to me. The failure or breakdown in Christian education is a direct result of us not uh, refusing to accept what Springsteen is saying, that everybody has a hungry heart. I have a hungry heart. You have a hungry heart. The kids that sit in front of you next Monday have a hungry heart. So maybe Springsteen's saying something worth considering. So let's throw that bad reading out and look again at that last line. Everybody needs a place to rest. Everybody wants to have a home. It don't make no difference what nobody says. Ain't nobody likes to be alone. It turns out that Springsteen's song is not about an individual man's choice to leave his family, and it's certainly not meant as a morality tale. His point is that all of us are looking for something that we don't feel we have. 
All of us are looking for a place to rest, a place to call home. And he argues that it's all of us. And I think he's right. Allow me to share a similar idea expressed by a Christian, Kelvin University professor Jamie Smith. By the way, I'm deeply indebted to Smith for most of what I'm going to say for the next 30 minutes or so. Um, He echoes Springsteen's theme in his book, On the Road with St. Augustine, A Real-World Spirituality for Restless Hearts. Here's an abridgment of that book's first page. It might be loneliness. It might be your inexplicable attraction to bad boys, or the still unknown thrill of transgression and the hope of feeling something. It might be self-loathing, or greed, or curiosity. It might be a million other reasons. But we all leave. It's like all we ever do is leave. You can leave without a bus ticket, of course. You can be sleeping in the same bed and be a million miles away from your partner. You can still be living in your childhood bedroom and have departed for a distant country. Not all prodigals need a passport. We leave because we're looking for something, for someone. We leave because we long for something else, something more. We leave to look for some piece of us that's missing. Or we hit the road to leave ourselves behind and refashion who we are. We hit the road in the hope of finding what we're looking for, or at least sufficiently distracting ourselves from the hungers and haunting absences that propelled our departure in the first place. Or to be more succinct, as the boss says, everybody's got a hungry heart. It's at this point that I can anticipate some people (coughs) wanting to push back a little bit. After all, I just mentioned uh, St. Augustine and in the title of Jamie Smith's book. And Augustine famously said these words, Our hearts are restless, Lord, until they find their rest in thee. And that would seem to suggest that Jesus does satiate that hunger. And that brings us back to the idea that I just criticized in my experience with Christian education, namely the notion that Christians ought to feel restless. Um or if I'm going to use Springsteen's language, it would seem our hearts shouldn't be hungry anymore. They've fed on the bread of life. So why are you talking about hungry hearts? And it would seem that way. But it's important to place Augustine's quote from the beginning of the Confessions in the context of the work as a whole. When you do that, you find that he puts forward two truths that might seem contradictory. They're certainly paradoxical. Truth number one, Jesus alleviates our restlessness. Truth number two, even though he does, we're still restless. Like any paradox, you've got to sort of wrestle with it a little bit to make sense of it. The psalmist gives us a taste of that paradox in Psalm 42. He begins saying that as the deer pants for water, his soul pants for the living God. God alleviates that thirst. But then the psalmist goes on to ask, when can I go and meet with God? But he'd already met God. Now he's panting to go meet with God. So he knows God, and God satiates his thirst, and yet somehow that thirst is still there gnawing at him. It reminds me of a line from Hamlet. Um, Hamlet describes his mother with his late father, right? Why she would hang on him as if increase of appetite had grown by what it fed on. 
when I explain that line to my kids, I explain, it's like potato chips. <laughs> One potato chip just makes you want the next potato chip. Um, and the family size bag disappears, right? Or, here's a modern psalm, an anthem by you too. Bonus tracks, Bruce. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's a song that I think most of you, if not all of you, know. <coughs> I think it speaks to exactly what we're talking about. turns out maybe Springsteen was right. Maybe everybody does have a hungry heart, including followers of Christ. <laughs> Neither baptism nor conversion removes our sense of longing for something different than what we find in this world. And that longing, I think, is a gift from God. Uh, what Augustine meant when he said that we'd be restless until we found our rest in God. God has given us a sense of restlessness so that we might seek him. Our hungry hearts nudge us out the door and onto the road searching for something better, for someone better. The problem for our contemporary culture, as Jamie Smith shows in his consideration of various 20th century philosophers and writers, is that we can't find anything in this world that seems to satisfy that hunger. The road we travel never leads home, and our restlessness begins to feel burdensome rather than like a gift. When that happens, most people respond in one of two ways, Smith argues. They either embrace their alienation or they deny feeling restless at all. If they embrace it, they cocoon themselves in irony and indifference. <coughs> they give up that there is any home to find. They become flippant. And life feels kind of empty and isolated. Others choose the second option. And that's the option to ignore their alienation. They busy themselves with everydayness, with just the busyness of life. They pull off on the side of the road, right, if we take this road metaphor. They pull off on the side and then they pretend it's home. This doesn't look like home to me. But we can pretend. Right? And so they put down stakes somewhere... Um, and, and try and make a life of it here. So what does this have to do with Christian schooling? Uh, what do hungry hearts have to do with how we educate our students? Uh, I jumped the gun. It's a good question, so let's start with this. Any education will be stronger if it's founded on truths about who we are, 
who God is, why we're here, how we function. Recall that I said when I was younger, I thought Christians were supposed to be free of restlessness. I don't know how I absorbed that. I just did. Christians weren't supposed to ever feel restless. We have all the answers. Um, Christians weren't supposed to be yearning for something different. We'd arrived. I believe Jesus was the answer when I didn't bother to ever hear the question. Why did I believe those things? I don't know. Maybe I just absorbed it from the culture around me. But somehow, those sort of thoughts became part of my education. And the denial of yearning, it turns out, is a denial of reality. And an education that ignores reality or big parts of it is going to lead to problems. Right? I tried to demonstrate that up front with my high school sort of reading of Hungry Heart. But what happens if we embrace the truth about our restlessness? <coughs> what if our hungry hearts, though a burden, are, are also an actual gift? A stirring of the soul through which God invites us to discover something about ourselves and about Him. In On the Road with St. Augustine, Smith offers the following metaphor for Christian spirituality, one that I really, really like, and that's that we travel our life as refugees, spiritual refugees. Like actual refugees fleeing war in Syria or gang violence in Honduras, we set out with a deep-seated longing and belief that there's something better down the road, a place called home, even if we've never been there. Right? That's what a refugee is looking for a home they've never been to. But they believe it's there. They know it's real and they long for it. I like this metaphor. It honors our lived experience of spiritual longing and frustration and anxiety and loneliness. And the, the adult me is going, in a broken world, stained by sin, how can we expect to dodge those sorts of feelings? Of course we have those kinds of feelings. But the metaphor also affirms our hope of eventually finding a home. Not one from which we've come, but one of which we've heard, one for which we long, and one toward which we're moving. In the final verse of maybe his most famous song, Springsteen captures both the restlessness of our spirituality and its hope that something better is coming, just over the horizon. That's that restlessness 
as followers of Christ, we're going to get to that place we really want to go. We will walk in the sun, but we're not there yet. We're on the road. We're spiritual refugees. This metaphor of a refugee spirituality got me thinking about Scripture. Over and over, the story of God's people is a story of refugees. A story of strangers in a strange land who are longing for a home where they've never been. Abraham is called out of earth to travel to the promised land. Generations later, Moses and the Israelites flee persecution and they wander the desert as God moves them toward a new home, the promised land that they've never seen. The Israelites are exiled to Babylon, living in subjugation for generations, writing psalms filled with longing for the promised land, a land that most of them, after that first generation, had never seen. In John 15, Jesus says to his disciples, If the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you don't belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of it. That's why the world hates you. The Apostle Paul implores us in 2 Corinthians 5 to live as Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. Ambassadors, of course, live in a foreign land. They don't fully belong there. An ambassador who gets too comfortable in the nation where he serves is no longer an ambassador. So thank you, Jamie Smith. I find the idea of a refugee spirituality a very useful metaphor. It helps make sense of what Jesus means when he says to be in the world but not of it. Understanding that we're spiritual refugees yearning for home proves useful for how we approach students. Our students are restless or anxious or lonely or any combination of the above. How do I know? Because they're human. Everybody has a hungry heart. Too often, kids try to hide that because they want to please their parents or us. Because they've heard the story of Jesus, because some of them have even committed their lives to him, they think that that sense of yearning they feel has to stay secret. They don't see it as an invitation to hit the road in search of the promised land, but something to hide. But they're wrong. There's a reason that we use language like faith journeys. Spiritually, we are refugees on the road to the (coughs) promised land, and life on the road is difficult. As Smith says, the disciple, as much as anyone finds herself between, on the way, fatigued yet hopeful. Baptism is not a capsule that transports us to the end of the road. Conversion is not an arrival at our final destination. It's the acquisition of a compass. And, you know, we're talking about Tito's talk, reorienting desires, we're getting there. But orientation, a compass, it's pointing us a direction, not bringing us magically to the place. In light of this metaphor, I want us to think about Christian education as being about preparing our students for life on the road as refugees. People who are bound for the promised land, but who have not yet arrived. So now I'll say, if you're here for Springsteen, I've tried to appease you. You've got a couple songs. If you're looking for a different view of Christian education, I've tried to give you a, a perhaps a new metaphor to think about it. Now I want to try and start speaking to the pragmatic people here who are going, this is all great, but I don't know what difference it makes on Monday morning. 
practically speaking, how would this metaphor potentially change the way our schools work? How might it change the way I operate in my classroom? Let's try to get down to where the rubber meets the road. I think that keeping the spiritual refugee metaphor central to the enterprise of Christian education has several implications. First of all, it means that we need to teach our kids to be honest about their hungry hearts, their restlessness, their anxieties, their fears. They are not exempted from such feelings, and they shouldn't hide those feelings. In fact, we can help them to reframe those yearnings as a gift from God as opposed to something to hide, an invitation to seek Him and his kingdom. You see, there are really two different kinds of restlessness. Jamie Smith talks about the parable of the prodigal son to help illustrate the difference. The prodigal son shows us both kinds of restlessness. He's on the road looking for something to cure his restlessness, something to feed his hungry heart. He tries parties, drink, good food, new friends. This type of restlessness becomes to him a path of exhaustion. He's on a hamster wheel, running like mad and going nowhere. He doesn't think of his father or of that far-off home. He just keeps settling new places and trying to call them home. He just keeps pulling that camper off on the side. Welcome to the world of Friday night parties. Welcome to the world of a really chiseled physique. Welcome to the world of let's make a lot of money. That'll make me happy. And none of them do. He wanders. But then he remembers home, where his father treats even the servants better than people have been treating him. And the young man finds himself again yearning for something better, but this time that yearning has a goal. The restlessness has a goal. It's pointed in a direction. It's aimed somewhere. Jamie Smith describes it as, quote, a fatigue that stems from knowing where home is, but also realizing that you're not there yet. It's a kind of directed impatience. It's fundamentally different, a fundamentally different yearning or restlessness. The first is aimless, and it leads to frustration because, let's face it, without a compass point, without a fixed north, you have no way to know where you're going. You are literally just wandering. The second kind of yearning can make us tired and impatient because the journey can be long, will carry burdens and counter temptations. But, and it's a big but, we know where we're going. We know that home lies at the end of the journey, and that makes a difference. So one thing that can be done as Christian school teachers is to help our students identify their yearnings, their hungers, and help them see that restlessness is an invitation to point toward home. Not to deny it, not to say, you shouldn't feel uneasy. You know Jesus. It's a gift from Jesus. Use it to help direct you toward home. The object of our heart's desire says much about who we are. Do our students know that? Do we set up our lessons or, or procedures or classroom rituals to encourage them to consider their own yearnings? We also need to be honest with them that we are all refugees that our following Christ does not magically quell those yearnings. It does, however, give our lives direction and purpose. <clears throat> I can imagine a few people protesting that what I'm saying sounds out of line with traditional reform thought. Sounds a little bit like 
pie in the sky, and then you die. Right? Um, if that's what this is coming across as, I don't think you're quite hearing what I'm saying. A few people in this room know me, and trust me, if you know me, if there was ever a guy who's not pie in the sky when you die, it's me. Um, I think that charge is misplaced. Okay? And for a couple of reasons. First, I'm not talking about yearning for heaven. In fact, until right now, I haven't uttered that word. I'm talking about yearning for home. And you all know from right here on earth, home is not so much about a place, it's about the people there. So this is a yearning for God. Not for some, however you picture the afterlife. Uh, furthermore, we can use this metaphor of refugee spirituality to better read our students' spiritual lives. There was a time when I was concerned that too many believers were pie in the sky. And they're still out there. But I don't know you. When I look at my students, I am far less worried about pie in the sky. I think, I look at my students, i got 95% of them, if not more, are in their camper pulled off on the side of the road, sitting on stakes, calling at home. They don't think of themselves remotely as refugees. They're very comfortable in land of money, land of popularity, land of pleasure, land of you pick. Uh, I, I don't think that they're sort of, that sort of uh, neoplatonic dualism, I don't see it. Not the way I did maybe a generation ago. I see kids that seem very connected and settled here. They've forgotten there's something more to to life than this. Um, and I'm far more concerned about them right now. I want to get them longing for something different, to recognize that longing and to keep trying to feed it, to stop trying to feed it in the wrong places. For those kinds of students that are pulled up on the side of the road, it's our job to stir their restlessness. If they're not restless, they're not going to get the road, they're not going to look for God. So now we come to the crux of the matter. I'm saying we need to stoke those yearnings. We can't reorient those yearnings if we don't stoke them and get them feeling that longing. And I think a huge part of Christian education that goes unaddressed is this idea of shaping student longing. So I'm going to switch gears here. And for the next bit, I'm going to be borrowing a lot of ideas from Jamie Smith again, but this time from the book, You Are What You Love spiritual power of habit. Smith opens that book by arguing that the most important and fundamental question of Christian discipleship is this. What is it you want? The answer to that question shows the state of your heart, of your faith, of your character, because the answer is the thing that you love. What is it that you want? It's really a question about what it means to be human. Uh, our post-enlightenment contemporary culture likes to act as if we are thinking things. Smith uses the image of brains on sticks. And contemporary Christians tend to embrace this intellectualist model of being as well. Uh, look at our Christian schools. We work hard to teach comprehension skills, thinking skills, discernment. We talk about developing a Christian mind, Christian set of beliefs, a Christian worldview. That language, 
I would assume resonates with you. It's what I've been hearing my entire career. All of that is focused at the brain on the stick. None of those things are bad. I'm not bashing them. But they present an incomplete and an inaccurate picture of human being. Think of how many times you've thought something, but your thinking failed to change your behavior. We hear insightful sermons on Monday that we think we're going to really move on that by Wednesday. We can't remember what we heard, and it hasn't changed anything. Uh, We make New Year's resolutions that don't last beyond January 15. Point to me, one smoker, one, who doesn't know that it's insanely stupid to smoke as they light up a cigarette. See, the problem's not up here. They already know. Why does our thinking so often fail us? Maybe, Smith argues, it's not because we think poorly, but because our model for human being is wrong. Maybe we are not primarily thinkers. Maybe we are primarily lovers. And much of what we do is motivated not by conscious thought, but by unconscious orientation that's dictated not by what we think, but by what we love. What we love dictates what we do. It's our ultimate desire. Uh, If our ultimate desire is a yearning to find rest in God, then that love will result in better behavior, better decisions that lead us toward that goal. To tie back to what we've been talking about, we all have hungry hearts. That hunger is a gift from God meant to nudge us toward Him. We are created with a purpose, and that purpose, to quote the Westminster Catechism, is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. In other words, to love Him. Smith considers Paul's prayer for the believers in Philippi, in which he says, and listen to this, I never noticed this or thought about it until I read it in Smith's book. This is Philippians 1, 9-11, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes, from Jesus, comes through Jesus Christ. Now Smith highlights the sequence of the prayer. Paul prays that their love would abound so that their knowledge and actions will change. The love comes first. Then maybe your knowledge and actions will change. Not if I change your knowledge, the love will follow. Love first, the knowledge and the actions will follow. Love is leading the way. It precedes knowledge. As Smith says, love is the condition for knowledge. It's not that I know in order to love, but rather I love in order to know. And if we're going to discern what is best, what is excellent, what really matters, what is of ultimate importance, Paul tells us that the place to start is by attending to our loves. So how do we do that? How do we attend to our loves? How do we reorient ourselves or our students so that our chief desire becomes God? Or to use the language of the title of this talk, how can Christian education be a tool to shape students' longings? Let me suggest a couple of different ways. Um, I used to sing in a choir. When a passage of music was really difficult, our director would enjoin us to fake it until we make it. We've all heard that expression. The only way to learn to sing that passage was to try to sing it confidently, even when we had no confidence, even when we were making mistakes. Sing it, then sing it again, and sing it again until you stop making the mistakes. 
But don't think about it. Sing it. And sing it. And sing it. Over time, we'd find that confidence was no longer pretend because we'd begun to master the music. We didn't sit and think about the music. We sang it. Learning virtue is similar to learning music. Various philosophers, all the way back to Aristotle, have suggested that virtue is learned by doing, not by thinking. It's how we raise our young children. For example, we make them say, thank you, even when they feel no gratitude. We don't wait for them to feel good. We say, you know, you say thank you. Because if you say thank you enough, eventually you'll actually start feeling grateful. If we, if we raise little kids and said, when you start to truly feel thankful, then I want you to say it. <laughs> We'd still have a roof of people. None of us would be saying it. We'd none of us would say thank you for anything, right? We train ourselves into it. Um, Ralph Waldo Emerson famously said, sow a thought and you reap an action. Sow an action and you reap a habit. Sow a habit, you reap a character. Sow a character, you reap a destiny. And where I'm at right now, having read and studied all this stuff from Jamie Smith, I'd say Emerson almost got it right. I would change one word. Sow a desire and you reap an action. So an act and you read a habit and on the rest of the chain goes. But that's, right, if I back up, I would agree, this is what Christian education has felt like through most of my experience coming up in it and most of my experience teaching is we're going to sow the right thoughts and those thoughts will sow actions. And we're going to get you to know the right things. Now, I'll pause here. Jamie Smith, you know, he's a philosopher. He said, I'm not against thinking. It's kind of hard to be a philosopher and be against thinking. I'm not against thinking either. <laughs> I'm trying to do some of it with you right now. But this is about what, what most human behavior grows out of, is not thought. How many things do we do every day that you don't think about? You just do them. What's the real impetus then behind that? And I think, it's, I think this is right. I think it's desire. Desires orient our actions, right? Um, so then the thought for us is, okay, then how can we sow desires? Well, one of the ways is this idea of fake it till you make it, right? Um, uh, so let me give you two examples here of um, how desires can orient behavior. Let me give you a negative and a positive. Um, here's a negative sort of example. Right? Our desires lead to actions, which lead to habits, which lead to character. So... Think about race relations in America as an example. If I'm a white guy, and hey, I'm a white guy, and my chief desire is to be comfortable, because I think a lot of Americans, their chief desire is to be comfortable. That's one of them. Don't rock the boat. I like being comfortable. Then I'll likely avoid difficult ta talks about race, or I'll likely be silent <coughs> in the face of injustice done to others when it doesn't directly affect me. Not because I'm making conscious choices about it, but because my desire is to be comfortable. And those things are going to put me in positions where I'm uncomfortable. So I'm, my natural inclination will be to avoid that. Avoid it enough times, it becomes a habit. The habit becomes character. Character becomes my destiny. Right? My desire set a certain orientation. For a positive example, I was thinking about my own life. I'll give you an example when I was a kid, the church I went to, 
didn't change frequently, right? And we can all sort of laugh about the stick and the muddiness of that, and there's certainly something put. But here's an example of how you can also sow desires with this fake as you make it. Offering at my church growing up, I probably eight years of, in a row of my youth. Offering is collected, it's placed up front. We stand and we sing. We give thee but thine own, whatever this gift may be, all that we have is thine alone. A trust, O oh Lord, from thee. You know, you want to ask me, I think that I have a pretty solid scriptural grasp on money and that it ain't mine. And you know where I learned it? Right there, singing that song every Sunday for eight years of my life. Did I get it reinforced in Bible class or business, you know, consumer finance? Absolutely, I'm sure I did. But none of that. I just stood here and sang a song for you. I haven't sung other than getting ready for this talk. I don't sing at church. I find me a church that sings it anymore. Maybe we should, is my point. <laughs> that, fake it till you make it. Sing that it's God. It's God's. It's God's. It's God's. And lo and behold, I stand up and you know what? I, the person you give me money, I think, right away, this is God's. sow something by just fake it till you make it. So one thing as educators, where do we want kids to just be practicing behaviors that will orient their desires the right way? Right? If you're really thinking, you go, no, wait a minute. You said your examples are the behavior shaping the desire, but you started by saying desire shapes behavior. You speak with four tongue degrees. Okay? And I do if you're very linear. I'm less linear. I think it looks like this. Your behavior shape your desires, and your desires shape your behaviors, and it's a cycle. What we need to do is figure out how to break into the cycle. Right? And behavior is a place you can break in to try and shape the desire, which will then reinforce and reshape the behavior. Um, okay. So that's one way. Practice behaviors that show the longing. The second thing that we can do is... Uh, sorry, I'm lost in my notes here. Uh, and I'm ahead of myself. This is horrible. Don't put this on my evaluation. Um, right, to go back to this notion of a cycle, uh, in my, this understanding that it's a cycle like this, um, I am really twisted up in my notes. I'm sorry. So I'm going to just jump right in here. This understanding, in my opinion, presents a tremendous opportunity for our Christian schools. We have historically been so concerned with the renewing of the mind, to quote the Apostle Paul, that we've neglected the heart. Even when we discuss the heart, we do so as a piece of knowledge. Right? We say, you should love God above all. I guarantee all your students can say that. Saying that is a lot different than doing that. Um, in our schools, we give students the knowledge that they should love God, but do we shape their longings and their hearts actually direct, uh, get directed toward him. 
Um, second, now to get back to where I was, Smith talks uh, in his book about pedagogies of desire, which would be rituals and symbols and actions that help to shape and direct our affections. Rituals and symbols and actions situate us within a story. So that question is, how can we create rituals and symbols and actions that constantly situate our students in God's cosmic redemptive story? Right? And I'm not talking about taking uh, church rituals. I'm not talking about uh, taking church sacraments. Uh, let me try and put some flesh on these bones by way of a few examples. I have a counselor at my school uh, who uses every other Friday to do a wellness check with his homeroom. On Fridays, his students break into pairs or small groups, and each individual chooses an adjective such as happy, sad, frustrated, confused. He has a list of seven or eight. I don't have them all. And those adjectives, you know, to capture how they're feeling on that morning. Um, then they share why they're feeling that way with their, their partner or their couple of partners. Afterward, they pray with each other, and they pray for each other. Now, what my colleague is really doing, and he does it very successfully, he's building a community of people in his homeroom who care about each other. And he's doing it by setting up this Friday ritual. This is what Fridays are. This is how we do Fridays here. And it's a ritual. And the kids know it, and they just fall into it after time, right? Any ritual takes time to get established once it's established. And sometimes it takes a little time. My, I've got a, a single friend. When my kids were younger... Uh, we went, they have a Chris Kindle Mark in downtown Chicago. We'd go down there at Christmas. One year, the kids were like middle school. One year, my single buddy said, hey, come on along. Came, so he came with. Next year, we started talking to the family about going down there. Is Uncle Brad coming? I don't know. He has to come. He has to. It's a tradition. <laughs> That's what it took. One time, and that was a ritual. <laughs> and he did. For the next eight years, he came every time. But that's, so sometimes it's not that hard to establish something as a ritual with kids. Right? You just have to be intentional. Um, so, uh, you know, you have an example there. Uh, every classroom procedure is an opportunity to create a ritual. Every classroom procedure is an opportunity to create a ritual, right? Um, so think about this. How do you begin class? A little hard to read in the light. How do you ask questions? How do we format that? How do we structure it? Which questions do we ask? How do we preface questions? Uh, how do we address perspectives that are different from ours? How do we share food or school supplies? Uh, I have a quote that it's very hard to read in the light. Um, Neil Planning has this new book of prayers. Um, some of you have seen that. And he has one of his prayers. It says, let me today pass a dish of food to someone and think of that act as sacramental. And I just love that as a prayer. I'm going, little kids, if you teach lower elementary how do you get glue bottles? You can make a ritual that makes a point of serving others. Or it can be a free-for-all. Everybody just go get a glue bottle and push people out of your way. Right, right there you have an opportunity to make a ritual. We do it like this. And doing it like this reinforces a certain kind of behavior which begins to shape a desire which begins to point me in the right direction. Um, what sort of mantras do we use in our classroom? What, what sorts of phrases do we repeat? What sorts of phrases would be great that you could have some gray-haired guy like me in 30 years stand up here and say, I had this seventh grade teacher, and she made me sing this song, this hymn, I'd never even heard it, but you give me but I know, whatever, right? And suddenly that's coming back. 
because this is the mantra I learned in this class. This is how we approach knowledge. This is what we said about it. Um, these concerns are all addressed in how we act and how we teach our students to act. I don't think we give them enough thought. I don't think I give them enough thought. Maybe you are all more thoughtful than me. Um, but that's one of the things I've come to appreciate is uh, how important, you know, other people talk about this as being sort of the hidden curriculum. I'm saying well, let's unhide it then because maybe there's really, really important stuff here. And to treat it as secondary is to miss huge opportunities. Uh, there are also a third way, right? So have students practice the behaviors that shape the longing, set up ritual and symbol to form those kinds of habits. A third practical inclusion, uh, a practical way to address this, plan lessons where students get to act their role. Not know about their role, they get to do it. There's a world of difference between knowing about it and doing it. Right? Plan lessons where at least occasionally kids get to act their role in God's story. Right? Um, so a lesson on the Jim Crow South, for example, might have students performing actions in which they are trying to identify their own biases and working toward dismantling them. A lesson on financial literacy should somehow have students practicing stewardship, not just talking about it. An engineering lesson on reducing waste might have students <laughs> actively redesign packaging for product in order to do just that. And then, hey, send the new design off to the company. Share it with them. Rather than just talking about what Christians ought to know or believe, we're giving our students guided practice on how Christians ought to act. Do it. Right? Um, and again, the more they act, the more those actions start to shape the desires and the more they get pointed the right direction. Uh, other examples. Again, this is uh, not so great with the lighting here. You know, uh, middle school science class creating a uh, compost area for the school. Textiles class making quilts for a local charity. Biology students helping to catalog and remove invasive species at a state or a national park. Uh, young writers interviewing and sharing the stories of elderly people from a nearby uh, retirement or nursing home. Uh, economics or business students. Uh, engaging with local retailers uh, by letter or face-to-face -face on promoting just business practices, social studies, uh, interacting with people in government face-to-face -face or by letter. Get students actually doing it. Don't, don't talk about what Christians ought to do. Do it. Practice your role. Right? Um, these are all things that um, that would help to reorient to shape those longings and point them in the right direction. Uh, I'll be honest. I think there's a ton to unpack here, and I feel wholly inadequate to do it on my own. Um, I do think that some people are starting to do some of this. Uh, I was encouraged. I, I sat on um, Calvin Philosophy Professor. I'm Rebecca her name. DeYoung. Rebecca DeYoung, right? Uh, Glittering Vices. Is a that was... Uh, I sat there going, uh, yeah, Jeff was in there. Hopefully there's not too much overlap, but I think it dovetails with kind of the stuff I'm talking about. Uh, Dr. Edmondson in her talk this morning dovetails with this. So I do feel like there's more people starting to talk about these sorts of things. Um, but I, I think we need to think more about what students desire and how actions will help shape that. 
And I think we've got to get away from this model that it's all about what they know. And again, that doesn't mean knowing is not important. Don't set up a false dilemma. Right? Um, so to review really quickly what we just went through, teach kids uh, that our hungry hearts, our sense of longing for something more, that longing is a gift. It's not a curse. It's nothing to be ashamed of. It's a gift. God gives it to nudge us out the door looking for him. We're not in the promised land. We're on our path to it. And then we can set up our classes to help shape longings to get kids moving toward that promised land. And I'm trying to give you three basic categories, right? Have students practice behaviors that reflect their property-oriented longing. Use rituals and symbols to create habits that will point them in the right direction. And set up lessons that take that stuff that we know, but put it into actions that they're acting their role in the story, right? Uh, and to me, that's a pretty good um, capture of what Jamie Smith is after as we try to reorient students toward God. So that, with uh, seven minutes left, I'll say, are there any thoughts or questions? Um, two things came to mind from the letter of Romans. One is in chapter 8 where Paul talks about these groanings, right? That the Spirit even groans inside of the people of God. So if the Spirit is groaning and we're trying to hush that, I think maybe we're running in the wrong direction on that one. But then you also quoted from chapter 12, our off-quoted, quoted, uh, be renewed in the way that you think. But verse 1 says, offer yourself as a living sacrifice so if we're going to run the order of things there as well, right? right? There's an act that comes first, and while you're in that act, also begin, let this action reorient your thinking as well. Right. Thank you. So, like, 25 years ago, my brother, who's 20 years younger than me, was in high school, and he, he and I kind of discovered something in the Joshua Tree, and still had what I'm looking for. And um, I said to him, and he was a very devout young man, um, but I said to him, man, that nails it, doesn't it? I mean, I believe in the kingdom come, I believe, I believe. But I said, I'm probably looking for it. And he was really threatened by that. And he still would be. And so I, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, you know what I'm saying here? I, I'm thinking, for some people, that's really dangerous stuff. That, that whole idea that, no, you, you ought to be, right, you ought to be satiated now. You, 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 you ought to be there. Instead of the, the idea that it's a gift. Right. I got to keep clawing along here. Yeah. I, I, things that we find threatening, right, they scare us somehow. Um, and I can't speak for other people, right? I, I, I can't speak for, I can only speak for myself. I'm going, that pretty, that pretty accurately captures how, captures how I feel a lot of days. Um, I do believe it. I've staked my life on it. But but I like that spiritual area, but boy, I don't feel like I'm home at all. <laughs> Not even remotely. Um, you know, and um, feeling close to God comes and goes, which I think it does for all human beings. Um, I'm hoping, 
eternity is a long time if questions don't ever feel more resolved than they feel right now. I guess that, that might be what I'd say to somebody. If you're really, I could just take this for eternity. I, I want to know God differently. I'm hoping that on the other side of the veil, it's something different than this. Not that this is horrible, I'm not miserable or something, but, it, but boy, if it was like this for eternity, that would start to feel troublesome to me. Yeah. Right, dark, dark. But, exactly, and I think that's just it. And we're moving towards something better, and like I said, I don't think that's a pie in the sky thing. I think it's just we're, we're talking about a spiritual yearning, a spiritual hunger to be connected to God and to be connected to what really matters—a life of blessing. Um, and then I'd go back to the song. Yeah, I'm not there. Selling found it. But, to go to the Springsteen song, someday we'll walk in the sun. I don't have any doubt, someday we'll walk in the sun. But till then, tramps like us, baby, we were born to run. <laughs> uh, I think for us as teachers to model this right in front of our students, I don't mean to come here, you're going to hate me for doing this, but this, this man right here is the reason I became a teacher. Okay, what he did, not what he taught, but what he did in the classroom, I said, I want to do that. Now, he teaches English and I teach Bible, right? But for us to be in this position as teachers, to demonstrate for our students these moments of, I'm, I'm not satiated, I'm not satisfied with the latest story that came out in the news, I'm not satisfied with things, you know, and, and we got to temper it. Right? We can't get too personal with our students, but to model that in front of our students of, I know we're not home yet, but here's the home that I'm holding out hope for. And to echo on that, I think that is something our students need to know, that this is not my home. And otherwise, we become very much the camper on the side of the road. That right. This is good. By and large, this is a good place to be, but it's not my home. And I want that home. Right. Well, that's uh, I'd, somewhere in my notes here, I've got it in one of the places I got twisted up. But James Smith talks about the parable of the prodigal son. He says, it, it, James Smith's description is he takes a world of delights, because this is a world of delights, but it ruins it. When you make this the ultimate thing, it takes the world of delights and it ruins it. They all sort of then dissolve in your hand. If there's something you're enjoying along the way, it's like fruit being ripe in Caesar, right? Grapes that are lovely today won't be so lovely in four weeks. Um, this world is a lovely place. We're not bashing the world at all, but when you make it the ultimate desire, the ultimate concern, it turns to dust in your mouth. And, um, and that, I'm agreeing with you. That's what I said earlier. It's not, uh, I see too many kids of my kids that just seem really content with just plug it in here. Um, I'm going to make a lot of money. Money seems to be big. I don't know if that's just okay. I hear more kids talk about that than, Jobs are to make big money, and I'm going to make big money. And look where we are. We clearly don't quite get that. <laughs> I was that close. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you. As you're exiting, if you're hardcore spring scene, there's one song you got to play because it's come up already. You know, I, I won't test you on your spring scene. Right? You get one more going out. Thank you very much. Okay.